It was in April of 2010 that I did a walk around Fondren. It was a prayer walk. And there was something just percolating in me. I would say it was a burden, a concern, an idea, a possibility. And I, at one point, I even stood on the steps right out front and prayed. Prayed for this place, for the neighborhood and this very place and what God might have in store for the future. And I gathered a sense. I'm not trying to get over-spiritual or mystical on you. I just gathered the sense that God might want to use me here in what he would want to do. I shared that idea with my fabulous Susan at home, and she didn't buy into it so readily. Oddly enough, by the way, in Amos, the old prophet of old, it says in Amos 3, can two walk together unless they agree? That's pretty important. Like, that's really important in marriage. So I, I, I waited. I did that thing that's so unnatural to me. I waited. I waited, and I prayed for God to speak to the fabulous Susan. <laughs> oddly enough... Oddly enough, strangely, don't ask me to explain this from the stage, but we were at a, a coffee shop in Paris when she began to open up, and I began to see that two were about to walk in agreement. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 is a verse that means an awful lot to me. It says this, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. That's beautiful. Everything has a starting point. Every job, every journey, every romance. I'm watching a couple get started now. Every life, you have a beginning. Everything has a beginning. And we sense that God wanted us to start something here, something um, called a church, something called Fondren Church. And so five and a half years ago, the work began with with a few people, we rented out the dueling hall auditorium. We weren't sure what type of alcohol it was going to smell like when we worshiped there the first time. We didn't have any room. All we had was an auditorium. Remember, Laura, we didn't know what we were going to do with kids or babies, but we had Laura McAlpin, and she was going to stand. That was the plan. She was going to stand in the back. There wouldn't be, a bit, wouldn't be many people there, not many people in the back, nobody in the back. So Laura would stand back there with kids and babies, and that's how we made it through those few services. We didn't know what we were doing. We still don't know what we're doing. Don't ever let us try to fool you, right? But we didn't know what was going on, and it was kind of cool. In Dueling Hall, there was a floral shop, and they had to move. There was a record store, and they had to move. We were praying a curse on people there. So we got room for children, not really. We got room for children. I had a room for an office. It was, it was really cool. I have a memory when you share, when you, have a, when you start a church in a bar and share space with the community, um, it's really cool. There was a band playing in Dueling Hall early, early in the life of our church called Flaming Lips. Anybody know about Flaming Lips? Yes. The lead... Kid you not, the lead singer used my office one day for a green room. And he had suitcases unpacked with clothes and exercise devices, all kind of weird contraptions. And I walk in, I'm not really an office guy, if you know what I'm saying, but I happened to walk in my office that day and he was there with all of his stuff. And he goes, dude, dude, do you mind if I kind of just, you know, I'm like, oh man, I wanted to represent Jesus, you know, we prayed that God would use our church to bless the community. I'm like, yeah, you stay here, whatever. And as I was walking out, um, I have a witness, and as I was walking out, the guy yells at me. He goes, hey, man, is it cool if I light up a joint in here? I'm like, no, 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 no. That was one of my favorite memories of the dueling days. 
Another one similar is when we had a disco night. It was an idea that we would have a music night and we would give $5,000 to one of our strategic partners. And this particular thing was disco night. And a couple of the guys, a couple of the leaders and friends of mine said, hey, Robert, you're, you're a pastor and you dance. And it's disco. That's like your era. Why don't you hit the floor? Because tonight's only going to be fun if we dance. It's disco night. It's only going to be good if people get on the dance floor. So be a leader. So I got out there and I danced, and it's probably my best, best example of leadership ever. And people, man, like, hey, there's the pastor. He's dancing. Let me, let me get out there. And people got out there. And a couple of girls, one in particular, they didn't go to our church, but they were invited by someone who went to our church. And he said, you know, we're a church, but we meet in a bar, so we're really not a church. And then this event's not, I mean, sponsored by church, but it's not church. So she was there, and she started dancing very inappropriately. And my wife began to look at me as if I did something wrong. You, men, you know what I'm saying? It's just that look. It's just, it's just a piercing. It's just nasty. Everything about it's nasty. She's blaming you. There's condemnation and judgment. And I just look back at her like, you know, she was looking at me like, you do something. I'm looking at her like, you do something. <laughs> like, you're a woman. And, and I kid you not, we have some witnesses. This, it, it got worse and worse. It just deteriorated quickly within minutes. And this chick just straight up started twerking. And Susan runs to the dance floor with a couple of girls and gently, in the power of the Holy Spirit, escorted her off to the side and just kind of gave her a little talk about us being a church and, you know, that sort of thing. Just great memory. My favorite memory of the dueling days, some of you were there, a lot of you don't know this story, but in the middle of a sermon, about 10 minutes in, a snake slithers in. And grown men jumped on their chairs and squealed like schoolgirls. It was a sight to behold and true story. A 12-year-old boy, you remember? A 12-year-old boy named Christian got up and grabbed the snake by the head for effect and walks it out of Dueling Hall. You get that? Christian takes a serpent out of church. I mean, I, and I thought, if ever I've been confident that God has called us here, it was that moment. Um, and the twerking actually came after that. And I thought, man, we're done. Can I tell you the truth? A friend called me on Monday morning after the disco night and said, I thought, oh, I know why he's calling. He's heard. The word is spreading. The church is going under. He goes, dude, I heard about that. I'm coming to your church now. I will be a part. And he's a member today because of that. So God can use anything. Don't despise. Don't despise humble beginnings. This morning, we're going to begin a series in the book of Acts. And I want it to nourish our church and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. I want it to nourish your life, maybe your home life, maybe your heart, maybe what God has called you to organizationally as you lead. There's just some good stuff. There's some spooky stuff. There's some stuff that kind of freaks you out a little bit in Acts. We're going to walk right into it all. We're going to look at the big themes as we walk through this wonderful New Testament work. So turn to Acts 1. In a moment, we're going to put it on the screen. But as we consider Fondren Church and those, those beginnings and the things that God has brought us through, uh, disco nights and flaming lips and snakes and such, I want us to think about church itself. You can think about this with any organization, but a church starts and there's, there's, a, there's a launch. And that launch, after that launch, there's some growth. There's some momentum growth. I mean, when something's new, people want to check it out. So it's fresh and exciting. It's inviting. People come. That's momentum growth. After momentum growth, there can be strategic growth where some leaders start leading. They set goals and objectives and put some systems in place, policies. We've resisted policies as long as we can. But they put things in place. And after uh, momentum growth is strategic growth. And then at sort of the top of the curve, there is what they call sustained health. In other words, you've made it out of the early stages and you are an organization. You are a church and things are being sustained. But it's in that sustained health that things can grow and flourish and move into the future or things can 
began to plateau and decline. There's a couple of words that the experts talk about in this stage in the life of a church, and one is maintenance. If we're not careful, we get to that sustained health, but then we become slowly unhealthy because we're looking to maintain. If it's about maintenance, it's about preserving what you have. It's about comfort and safety and security. None of those things, none of those things you find in the book of Acts about the church. None of them. Can't find them. But that's what a church, particularly in America, becomes about. It's maintenance and then it's preservation. It's about survival. I will survive is great to sing if you're Gloria Gaynor, but not if you want to follow Jesus. There's so much more that he's called us to than survival. And then after that, after preservation and maintenance and survival, there is life support. How can it be that something that launched, that had momentous growth and strategic growth, that had sustained health, could get to a point of life support? There's a cycle, and one of the most damaging things in the life of a church can be when a church becomes inwardly focused, and there are symptoms of an inwardly focused church. A church can have one of them, but if you have multiple symptoms, it's time to call the doctor. Some of the symptoms of an inwardly focused church could be a a bulletin that's loaded with announcements, a calendar that's filled with activities. Uh, it, It can be a church that's no longer telling stories of life change. It can be an idea to preserve that you're seeing some numerical growth, but everybody wants to stay. You want to stay in one service so that everybody can see everybody. And everybody seeing everybody becomes more important than reaching new people. And pastors become people pleasers. Don't say anything. Don't challenge. Don't ever preach boldly because you may lose somebody. You may lose them. You may lose this person. Don't do that. Not only do pastors become people pleasers, attenders become pastor needers. And we live in an age, I'll just say it, we live in an age in America, and maybe you've said it or thought it or heard it recently, I want to go somewhere where I will be fed. And I say often, don't go to a church, don't find a church where you will be fed, find a church that will create a hunger in you, and that you will be a self-feeder. Don't go to church to be fed, go to church to learn to exercise your faith. And that's what we see. What we see in a church that's inwardly focused, people no longer invite new people. It's not a place that you want to invite new people. And that church, it's survival, it's maintenance, it's protection. It's going to end up on life support and die a slow and painful death. Some churches are dying and don't know it. But it's inwardly focused. Will we celebrate? Will we celebrate the new work that God wants to do in us. I love, can I say from the outset, we're going to look at some of the mysterious stuff in these weeks ahead, but I love the book of Acts. I love what is in Acts. I love that there's unity and singleness of purpose. I love that there's mission and prayer and dedication and sacrifice. I love that there's developing leaders, the new generation of leaders. The older folks make sacrifices so the new people can be welcomed and developed. That's a real value of ours at Fondren Church, that we would minister and let the young guys lead. They have that, and leaders care. Leaders are bringing about change. Leaders are speaking the word boldly. Leaders understand opposition. They understand that opposition doesn't mean that the mission should shut down, but that we at times should walk boldly through that. I love what's in the book of Acts, and I love what's not in Acts. In the book of Acts, I want to say this, and I'll probably repeat it a few times. If you're a note taker, this might be a good moment for you. But the book of Acts, you never see the church as as a place to attend or an event to sit through. You see it as a movement to become a part of. In Acts, you never see the church as a place to attend or an event to sit through. You see it as a movement 
to become a part of. I want to ask a question, and I want to carry it with us through this series. How do you get from a dozen dysfunctional disciples to over two billion people today? You ever studied movements? There's some really good movements. There's some bad movements. There's some mediocre movements. There's some movements that have come and gone. I studied with Campus Crusade for Christ one summer at the Ethics Institute at a class on movements. We just looked at movements. And let me tell you today, bottom line is there's never, ever been a movement like this one. A dozen dysfunctional disciples, 2,000 years later, 2 billion people. And I want to tell you that the difference, the, the, the big idea, it's found in Acts. It's that they were a movement. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 1 through 11 today. Acts 1 11. Hucker down. This will take a minute. Acts 1. It's on the screen. Good if you have an open Bible in front of you. I'll stop just a couple of times for explanation. In the first book, that would be what? Who wrote Acts? Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote Luke. So he's referring back to Luke. He's like, here's this coming. Here was this in the back. So in the first book, oh, Theophilus, that's a skeptic and a friend. How cool is that? He has a friend who's a skeptic. The church bulletin's not so full. The calendar is not so littered with activity. He actually has time to live on mission, and he's got a friend who doesn't believe, and he's a good friend, and he's writing in part with him. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to, here's the word, but to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Isn't that hard? You got a bunch of leaders who are eager. And you tell them what? Wait. They got their ankles taped. They got ink under their eyes. They're popping their shoulder pads. They're ready to get out there. And you say, wait. I wonder why he said wait. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said. You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will soon be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Getting weird for anybody? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you sit at this time... Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. Here's our key verse, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Now it's really going to get weird. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Never before has a ragtag group of people received such a weighty assignment. What can we learn? What can we learn today from this reading. What, what do we need to know as we begin this series in the book of Acts? Verse 8 is our key verse, as I said. You wait, and as you wait, you will receive power. And you'll receive power 
to begin a movement, a movement that starts where you are and it expands. We, we have meetings where we sometimes go back and forth and debate uh, local missions and global missions. And the role of the church is to always think locally in light of globally. I know some movements have stole that and put it on their bumper sticker. But you see the concentric circles. Jerusalem, that was a holy city. That's where it all began. Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We'll get into this later. This will be fun. The young generation will love this. But Samaria, Samaria represents what? It represents a different class of people. It represents a whole different tribe. It represents the people that you're not supposed to like. And Jesus says, go to those people. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody's created in the image of God. This is not local and tribal. This is global. And it's a movement. I want to give you two characteristics. As we say that church in Acts, unlike the church in America, is not a place to attend or an event to sit through. It's a movement to be a part of. And I want to give you this morning two characteristics of this movement. I don't want you to miss. I want you to think about it through this series. The first one is this. These women and these men, they were captured. They were captured by a message. The Romans, this is, I love Roman and Greek history. When I was in my early 20s, I got to go for the first time and walk some of the streets and see some of the cities. And it, it's just so fascinating to me. The Romans were an amazing people. And they were a violent people and a barbaric people. The Romans executed thousands upon thousands of human beings. You know, today, we can only really name two. Can you think of the two men that are mentioned in our day, Jesus Christ, you got that one. Second, Spartacus. Spartacus was a Roman soldier who was imprisoned, and then he was made a slave and a gladiator. You can picture the movie. And Spartacus decided to organize a rebellion, a coup d'etat, a treason. He decided to have a slave uprising. And thousands of men joined him in his journey to overthrow and to, to gain freedom. There's something in the human spirit that says, I'm not a product to be bought or sold. I'm not to be imprisoned. And Spartacus was one of those who wanted to overthrow. And in this slave uprising, they, of course, get Spartacus. And they want to send a message and they want to be visible and tangible and really loud with it. And they put them on a cross. They lined 6,000 crosses leading in and out of Rome. 6,000 and crucify men. In the most horrific death possible. It was a message. Let's send a message. Let's send a message that the Roman government will not allow this. But think of the contrast. Follow me if you will. Spartacus, notoriety, big deal. Jesus Christ, obscurity. They saw him as a backwood Jewish peasant. But to this day, we have to be confronted. And it's, I believe, evidence that does demand a verdict. How could it be that someone that lived in obscurity for only 30-something years, how could he have the impact that he did? And I submit to you clearly that it's because these disciples... They were captured by this message. This message of love and sacrifice. This message was so great and so glorious that they were willing to die for it. And they did. In America, we struggle. Staff gather and the lead pastor walks out on a stage and we call it Vision Weekend. And the, the role of the pastors once or twice a year remind everybody of why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. It's Vision Weekend because we hope you'll buy in. 
The early church didn't experience that. The early church, they, they, they were dying. They weren't walking around going, hmm, what, what's this about? What's, what's our mission statement again? While they're dying all around. No, they were captured by a message. And the message is, a man lived and died and bought our freedom. This message of love and grace was too compelling for them. Think of the last time you were fired up. Think of the last time you were excited about something. What did you do? What did you do with your excitement? Did you try to contain it? Or did it overflow? Did you tell others about it? And that's what we see, and it's what we're going to see over and over again in the book of Acts. When you're excited about something, you become a witness. In our key passage today, you wait, you'll receive power, and you will be my witnesses. Notice it says it's, it's possession. It's, it's a character trait. You will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? In a court of law, a witness testifies. It's not so much what a witness does. It's what a witness testifies to what has been done. I grew up in a church where once a week, if we were a good Christian, we would go witnessing. We would meet at the church on Tuesday night. It was called visitation. Anybody remember this? We'd go knock on doors and ring doorbells and share our faith. We were witnesses. We would go and do this thing called witnessing. But in Acts, you see something a little different. You see people living on mission. You see people testifying to this message that had so captured their heart. Look at what happens when people in the New Testament, are filled with the Holy Spirit. What is it that they do? Real quick, John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit, proclaims the coming of the Lord, Luke 1.15. Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, proclaims blessings over Mary, Luke 1.41. Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, prophesies about the coming of the Lord, Luke 1.67. All of them, filled with the Spirit, began to speak, Acts 2.4. Peter, being filled with the Spirit, preached to the rulers, Acts 4.8. The disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word boldly, Acts 4.31. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to preach. They testify, they prophesy, they're witnesses, they speak, they're captured by a message, and they can't help but tell people about it. Oh, by the way, they were filled with the Spirit. And that's the second thing. This movement, this church that wasn't a place um, to attend or an event to sit through, it was a movement to be a part of, they were captured by a message. And not only that, they were yielded to the Holy Spirit. Now, don't raise your hand or nod your head because I'll judge you. But how many of you here this morning are a little spooked out when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Does it scare you a little bit because of, because of a church you used to attend or something you've seen on TV or that crazy uncle that you have? Does it, or the preacher at Fonder that talks about snakes, does it spook you a little bit to, to think about the Holy Spirit? Francis Chan, a great pastor, wrote a book called The Forgotten God. What a, what a great title. Because there's God the Father... There's God the Son, but the Holy Spirit is the forgotten one, the forgotten God. God the Father, we get that. As a pastor, let me tell you, there's no word quite like the word Father. I mean, I get to stand here and I get to study the sea of faces before me as I preach. And when I mention the word Father, whenever I do that, it just, there's just something there. You, you go with the word Daddy, and it's just there's a power. There's just no word quite like that. And it, it, it brings forth some emotion, doesn't it? God the Father, 1 John 3, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. God is our Father, and I think we get that. And there's Jesus. We talk about him all the time. In fact, we preach Christ through all Scripture. When I went to seminary, I was taught, how do you preach Christ? 
in all of Scripture. Different, different women and men have different ideas about it, but it's important to me. And so when we do a theme like we do the cross, when we do a book like we do Acts, when we, when we do a character sketch like we do David, we're always asking you to examine the story, to get into the text and find Jesus. Find your part in the story and find Jesus. And we get that. But the Holy Spirit, who is he? When did he show up? Does anybody know? I was with a young guy this week, we were talking theology, and by what he said, he implied that the Holy Spirit was God, New Testament God, just showed up. He's uh, Johnny come lately, not just forgotten God, but Johnny come lately God. Let me ask you, when was, when is the Holy Spirit first mentioned in God's word? Do you know? Genesis, thank you very much. Do you know how, do you know the chapter and verse? Look, I like talk back, y'all talk back to me, okay? (laughs) My kids can't talk back to me, but you can talk back to me. Cammie, I think you got that right. Genesis 1-2, that's pretty early, isn't it? Genesis 1-2, and the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. God's getting weird again. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. He's God. He's always existed. He's omniscient and omnipotent. He's always been there. In the Trinity, we see a oneness, we see unity, but we also see uniqueness. And we will learn as we walk through Acts, because Acts mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other book by far. 47 times in 28 verses, and we'll get here to the end, but we're living, you and I are living in an era known as Acts 29. This is a continuation of the Jesus story and the story in Acts. But the Holy Spirit is mentioned from the beginning. He is God, he's creator and redeemer, and he has a role in the Godhead. What happens in Acts when the Holy Spirit shows up? When he shows up, some some things happen. Lots of things are mentioned in these 28 chapters. Wealthy people distribute their goods. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. The poor benefit from this. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 6. Gender discrimination is overturned, Acts 16. Racial discrimination is overturned in Acts chapter 10. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. And that gets me to an important point because I want everybody, even our budding, especially our budding young theologians out there, to understand what I'm about to say. And it's important as we walk through Acts. It's important for the unity of the church, for our understanding of God and his work in the world today. When you're reading scripture, especially a narrative like Acts, there's a story in time. We need to ask ourselves a question as we go. Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive, as the name would suggest, is it describes what happened to a certain people at a certain time and place. Prescriptive is, hey, what happened is true for everybody, every nation, every time, everybody. That's, that's a prescription on how we are to live. I'll give you an example. This is just a quick stab. But it, when we get to Acts 10, you'll see Peter up on a roof with a man named Cornelius. It's a beautiful story. It's strange, but it's a beautiful story of racial uh, unity and a coming together of humanity. Now, some of the particulars I don't think are prescriptive forever. I don't want you going on a roof and looking for a guy named Cornelius, right? It's prescriptive. I'm sorry, descriptive, but prescriptive is we need to care about people and we need to care about people who don't look like us. We need to care about the poor when it talks about how the, the people give and the, there, were no needy, there were no needy among them. There were no needy among them. I don't think that's just a description. I think God desires us. No matter how implausible it seems to move toward that, I think it's an ideal that ought to describe us as a faith family. 
So good things happen. I want to give you a few words uh, to write down if you're a note taker to think about later. The first is the word gifts. There are gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is what causes confusion and division in the church today. Trust me. And what's sad about it is when Paul writes about the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he says, My brethren, I would not have you ignorant about spiritual gifts. So it's sad if we're confused about spiritual gifts. The Bible mentions, some of, it mentions the gifts of prophecy and teaching and exhortation. Um, there's leadership and mercy and giving. There's tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, a spirit of discernment. Now, some of those were like, yeah, we need teachers and exhorters and servants and people that have leadership and mercy. We get that. But then you get into the other ones, and that's where we get a lot of division. And so there are people who are good and godly people on one side who argue that those gifts have ceased. When the scripture was canonized, those gifts were only needed for a season, and they're not prescriptive for us today. And there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And then there are others who say not only are those gifts needed today, but everybody should have those gifts. Everybody should speak in tongues. Everybody should have this healing. Everybody should be able to perform these miraculous signs. And so those are the extremes, and there's people in the middle, and there's just a lot of fighting. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Nick and Molly, who lead our groups, our small groups, have tools and training to help you discover what your spiritual gift might be. There are diagnostic tests that you can take, and there's also just a, it's a spiritual endeavor. It's listening. It's listening to God and listening to other people. Can I just say, not to dumb it down or oversimplify it, but if you have a gift, other people notice that gift. It might not be up front as a teacher, but if you have a gift, other people are going to notice that gift if you use that gift, and they're going to benefit from that gift. So there's, there's confusion and there's division. Division because we look at people and their gifts and we want their gift. And Paul taught in the New Testament that do not be desirous of other people's gifts. The Holy Spirit dispenses these gifts according to his grace. So use your gift and if you like your gift and you're using your gift, don't be prideful about your gift. Confusion and division can wreak havoc on our church and the church and the unity that we want to see God do today what's your gift do you know it first peter 4 10 will tell you to discover your gift and then use it to serve others and what a joy that is beyond the words the word gift there's the word fruit and the word fruit i'll make this one simple it's listed for us in galatians chapter 5 And in Galatians chapter 5, it says, Here are the fruit of the Spirit. If God lives inwardly in you and you yield to Him over time, in increasing measure, these traits could be stronger in your life. Think of your relationships. Think of your marriage and your family. Think of your workplace, your neighborhood, your small group. If you had love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. As a pastor that I'm a preacher, that means I'm doing what I'm doing now. As a, as a pastor, I'm a pastor. That means I do some counseling. It means I sit down with some of you. It means I hear some of your stories, and I see sometimes when the train has run off the track. And you let me in, as I sometimes let you into my world, some of you in greater depth. And I hear your stories. I learn of your dealings. The direction of your life, some of your decisions. 
And we need God to produce his fruit in us. We need more love. Do you need more love? We need more joy. We need more peace. I talked to someone I love this week. We need more self-control. Men, men, we need more self-control. And the Holy Spirit promises to produce in us. So in the church, I've said this a few times, I'll say it about twice a year, churches are good, American churches are good at counting the ABCs. Attendance, buildings, and cash. All, to some extent, are important. But what we can't count or measure is fruit of the Spirit. It's character qualities. But I can't think of anything more important than our leaders here, including me. I can't think of anything more important for how you parent, how you receive parenting if you're a teenager, and how you live with your spouse. And God desires to produce fruit in us. What I don't want us to do, I want us, let me say this, if if I need to tip my hand, I will. This is important if you're visiting us and exploring Fondren Church. I want to tell you that I want every miracle, every sign, every wonder, every gift that God has for our church. I sat down with a young doctor a couple years ago and he said, man, I'm thinking about joining the church. I'm interested in Fondren, but let me, I'm going to ask you, if, if I'm sick or my kids are sick, will you pray for me? Will you pray for healing? I want to pray for healing. At 3.30 today, I'm going to go to the hospital and see someone that I love. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to lay my hands on them. There's nothing special about my, my hands. I'm going to pray a prayer. There's nothing really special about my prayers. But I feel compelled to pray for them. And I will pray that God heals them. I want every sign and every wonder. But I don't want to elevate the gifts to a place that they don't belong. And honestly, in my heart as I pastor this church, I'm really concerned about fruit of the Spirit. That we would let God transform our character. At the end of the service, we're going to put up the names of some guys that have been nominated as deacon to serve as we grow this ministry of servanthood in our church. And I'm going to ask you, if you know any of these men and you see any reason why they shouldn't serve as a deacon because of their character, then let me know. It matters. We'll never get it right every time, but it matters. And when we learn, because we love each other, when we learn about a lack of fruit of the Spirit, when we learn that a leader in particular has run off the track, we go in love to win them and woo them and restore them with gentleness and reverence. Because let he who stands be careful lest he fall. And we do it in love. Parents, you would not let your kid touch a hot stove or run in crowded traffic or run with scissors or play with a loaded handgun. You would tell them, no, stop it. Because why? Because you love them. And so it is with the church. The fruit of the Spirit matters. Our character matters. And we need to be growing in it. There's the gifts of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit. And then I want to share with you, there's growth. When the Holy Spirit shows up, you'll see throughout Acts there's growth. If your Bible is still open, you can look at Acts 1.15 and we'll tell you that they waited. First of all, waiting is not what we like to do. But when you wait, I just want to say this. It could sound cruel if you're in a tough waiting place, but just receive this as best you can. But when you wait, God is showing you that he is in control, not you. That you are at the end of yourself. You're at the end of the proverbial rope. You're at the end of your proverbial wit's end. You are ready to throw in the proverbial towel. It is not about you and you are at the end of your ingenuity. You cannot manufacture this. You must wait on power from on high. And I'm not talking down to you. I've had to wait and I'm waiting now. But wait on God. What did they do when they waited? 
Did they watch video games? No, they didn't have video games. Did they play solitaire? No, they didn't have solitaire. Did they twiddle their thumbs? Well, they had thumbs, but they didn't twiddle their thumbs. The Bible says they were in one accord and they, in prayer and supplication. One accord in prayer and supplication. They were seeking and they were expectant and they were waiting. But look at what Scripture tells us. They waited for 30 days and then Peter preached he preached a 30-minute sermon, and Acts 2 tells us that 3,000 people, that's a good day, 3,000 people were added to their number on that day. That's just a good day. I'm not going to get close to praying that prayer. I'm just a little desirous, right? Just a little jealous of Peter. But that was one heck of a sermon. You see what I just did there? I put it on the man. I put it on the message. But it was Holy Spirit power. And it was, it, God said, at this time, I am going to do something, not because of Peter, in spite of Peter. Ever studied Peter? I've taught you a little bit about Peter. In spite of Peter, not because, but, but Peter waited. He waited expectantly. He waited in prayer. He didn't play, watch video games, didn't play computer solitaire, didn't twiddle his thumbs. He was with others in unity and one accord with prayer and supplication. That word means specific requests before the Lord. And God added to their number. So in Acts 115, we see what? I, I was going to mention this earlier. Uh, if you have an open Bible, you look down, you see 120 people waiting. And in one day, 120 goes to 3,000 plus. And then in Acts, we learn in Acts chapter 4 that that uh, grew by 5,000. It says 5,000, not counting women and children. In other words, probably 20,000 people estimate. And then in Acts 6, it says they increased greatly. In Acts 9, chapter 1, it talks about how the church was growing, how they built one another up. They enjoyed peace. They went on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of God. And it says that they multiplied they didn't just increase by addition they increased by multiplication in other words life on life the message of Jesus took the be with me plan had taken root and now they were bearing fruit they were with one another living out those one another's exercising their gifts experiencing the fruit that he can produce in them it's just contagious isn't it when you see a group of people who really love each other who are sharing what they have or taking care of the poor Right, who, who, who have a sense of awe and they're devoted. There's dedication and sacrifice and godly men and women in leadership. There's just something contagious about that. And the church grew. What about you? Because at the end of the day, you're a selfish person like I am. I want to speak to you. I want to tell you today as we begin to close to not forget about the forgotten God. When Jesus described the Holy Spirit, he described a really important word. I think it's a word that stands out above all other words when you understand the Greek language and how he taught. He said the Holy Spirit is a helper. And how many of you need help today? I'm telling you, I do. I need him. The Holy Spirit is a helper. And Jesus said that we are to ask for the Holy Spirit. Look what it says, look what he said in Luke eleven three. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, I love when the Bible flatters us. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We ask for Holy Spirit power. The second thing we do is we listen. We listen to him and then we follow. We do what he says. Yesterday I missed something. I didn't do something bad or evil. I just missed an opportunity. And I wasn't accessible or interruptible. And I believe it was the Holy Spirit. We could argue all day if it's my conscience or the Holy Spirit. I think there's a mingling of both. And Scripture teaches that. 
But I feel like the Holy Spirit has whispered to me to make the phone call today. I'm going to get my nap first, then I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to call my brother and say, hey, I missed something here, and I want to tell you I'm sorry. Ask, listen, and follow. Follow what he says to you. The early church had Holy Spirit power, and they were made up of followers.